Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Smell Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Boateng. This week, join me in listening to an episode with Dr. Richard Doty, director of the University of Pennsylvania Smell and Taste Center and creator of the UPSIT, or the University of Pennsylvania Smell Identification Test, which is very widely used nowadays. Dr. Doty and I speak about how he got involved in the world of smell, how the Smell and Taste Center got its start, why the UPSIT was created, and much more. Our interview was recorded on September 18, 2020. Let's listen to the interview. Hi, Dr. Doty. Welcome to the Smell Podcast. How are you doing today? Fine, thank you. I'm looking forward to this interview. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're here with us today. So to start, can you please introduce yourself to everyone? Where are you from and where do you currently live? Uh, sure, I'm uh, Dr. Richard Doty. I'm the director of the Smell and Taste Center at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. I grew up in Colorado, but I currently live in Philadelphia. And I've been in Philadelphia for oh, probably 50 years now. Oh, that's great. Well, um, I'm from the West Coast, too. I'm originally from Idaho. So, I mean, it's kind oh. of close to Colorado, which is fun. <laughs> I did spend my freshman year at, in Spokane, Washington. So we went to Lake Coeur d'Alene, I think it was called, in Idaho. <laughs> so it's about all I know about Idaho. Yeah, the, the Pacific Northwest is gorgeous. So that's, that's cool. So what is your educational background? Well, I have a bachelor's degree in psychology and biology, a master's degree that I did with NASA on uh, vestibular function and what we call psychophysics or the measurement of sensory function. My PhD was in animal behavior from the excuse me, from Michigan State University. Then I did postdoctoral work at the University of California, Berkeley in behavioral endocrinology. So my main interest in those time in those days were either human vestibular function that is balance uh, or animal behavior and uh, mechanisms that uh, actually involving smell and how evolution and speciation occurs among different forms of, of animals. So that, that leads me to my next question is you started in that area and now you work at um, a smell and taste clinic. So why smell and how did you kind of transition to getting involved more into the world of smell? Uh, my PhD was in was involved in studying smell among about 50 some odd species of a mouse genus called Paramiscus. I always thought that animals were in another world compared to ours. They think and may perhaps dream in terms of smells. Certainly if you have a dog you realize how important smell is important is to them. So their whole worldview is different than ours and uh, much of the brain of a dog for example is devoted to smell. They have many more smell receptors than humans. So I get sort of intrigued by the idea that many creatures are living in a different world than we do. We're visual creatures or auditory creatures, whereas many of those animals, in fact, the majority of mammals perhaps, live in a more of a smell-oriented world. So that's how I got interested. And then back in the early 1980s, the NIH had a call for centers specializing in smell and taste. So we applied uh, and uh, obtained one of these centers, a multi-million dollar center. So I sort of created my own job and one of the first things we realized was that there weren't any good ways of practically measuring one's ability to smell. So as a consequence of that grant, 
uh, we developed a number of smell tests, but in most notably the University of Pennsylvania smell identification test, which is the standard for measuring smell now in the world. It's been translated over, over 30 languages and has been given to uh, over 2 million people now. Yeah, so that actually is, that kind of leads me into a question about that. So this University of Pennsylvania smell identification test, or UPSIT, as, as it's usually called. So you're saying that part of the inspiration to create that was because it was, there was no other way to measure smell at the time. Is that right? Yes. I mean, there were ways you could measure thresholds. You could do time-consuming tests. But the idea in those days was that the only way you really could measure smell is to establish one's sensitivity to the lowest concentration odor that someone could perceive. But of course, there are tens of thousands of odors, and that's a very laborious and time-consuming process. So the logic we used at the time was that very much like a psychological test or, say, an intelligence test, we had a whole series of questions related to odors. And then based upon responses to those questions, we developed normative data so we can determine uh, the degree to which a person has, in an absolute sense, mild, moderate, severe, total loss, and also uh, where they fall relative to their peers in terms of a percentile rank. So we discovered, uh, indeed, we had a science paper back in 1984 showing that, in, that, that age is, was a big player in affecting the ability to smell. We showed that women, on average, uh, have a better sense of smell than men do or hold on to it longer in life. But the, uh, so the, the development of that test led to all kinds of discoveries in, in science. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. I've taken it myself. So if you were to describe the test to someone who's never seen it before, how does it work? Like, what is someone doing when they're taking it? Well, the test consists of, of uh, 40 scratch and sniff labels, that is, um, uh, micro-encapsulated odorants, in other words, you scrape open the label, you smell it, and then there are four choices. It may say, does it smell like apples, leather, pineapple, and so on? The individual has to make a response, has to try to decide what the odor is. Even if there's no odor or the odor that's perceived is different than the response alternatives. The reason for that, that's called forced choice testing. The reason for that is that without making a response, you really don't know what uh, a person's smell function is. Also, when people really concentrate, sometimes they do much better, unconsciously perhaps, than if they don't concentrate. So they have to make a response. Then it's the total number of correct responses across those 40 items that provides the test score, which is then compared to normative data. Yeah, excellent. And then another question about the upset is, why did you choose the smells that you all included on the test? Was there any rationale to those? Well, we started out with 50 smells, and we narrowed it down to the 40 that were most identifiable in studies that we did. We also chose response alternatives that were disparate from one another. In other words, uh, the four response alternatives for each odor, we wanted to make sure they differed significantly. So we had people actually take the names of the odors and space them out on a table in terms of their relative sensitivity, so that a particular name, if it's similar, maybe it's a flower, it would be spaced on the same part of the table, whereas if it's quite different, it would be spaced farther apart. And based upon the spacing of those names, then we chose 
disparate uh, or different uh, response alternatives or names based upon that. So there were a number of things that went into the uh, development of the test. It was quite quite a bit of research uh, that is, it's based upon. Yeah, I find it fascinating, and you're right. It's interesting because I'm sure at the time there was nothing, and then you guys worked together to create something that has now become the standard of care. Um, so what would you consider a passing score or a normal sense of smell on the upset? Well, it depends on the age and the gender of the individual, but typically 34 or better is considered normal. There are some cultural differences, so norms are slightly different in for example, in Brazil and the Portuguese version or some other versions. But for the most part, the North American version scores 34 and above out of 40 are considered to be within the normal range. Great. And then the majority of listeners, as I mentioned at the beginning, have some type of smell disorder, so typically complete anosmia. What score on the upset would indicate anosmia to you versus like hyposmia? Well, by chance alone since there are four choices and you have to make a response, then you should get one out of four correct on average or 10 out of 40. However, there's a sampling distribution around that. And so scores 18 and below uh, are considered to be uh, problematic. There's a little bit of noise. Uh, if you give the test on two occasions, you may find that a person varies one or two points on the test. So there's a little bit gray area, but generally speaking, 18 or below is considered to be uh, someone that has total or near total loss. Interesting. And another thing that you just mentioned that actually was very interesting to me is that there are different versions. So are there, are those different versions for different countries? Do they include different smells that are like more culturally appropriate to that country? Or do they all have the same smells regardless of country? Uh, they have different smells depending upon the language and the, the culture in which they're given. Um, and also some of the response alternatives differ. For example, skunk, which is known in North America, is not known in many countries. It doesn't have to be one of the odors, but it does have to be one of the response alternatives. Another, uh, something that's changed, we have a revised version of the upsets that's just being marketed now, uh, is Turpentine. A lot of young people never have heard of the word turpentine. Right. It's, it's paint thinner, right? It's basically paint thinner. It's back when paints were oil-based and everyone used turpentine to mix their chemical, clean their brushes and mix, mix, uh, make the uh, paint thinner and so on. So it's exactly like, and smells like paint thinner as well. Uh-huh. Interesting. So... Kind of back to your role with the University of Pennsylvania's um, Smell and Taste Center. This was started from what I from what I understand from what you said earlier. This center got started um, with like grant funding from the NIH back in the 80s. Is that correct? That's right. It was funded in 1980, with, really with three goals or purposes in mind. One was to do research uh, and, and the chemical senses. Another was to uh, give teaching, uh, educational mission. So those are the two of the major missions. But the third, though, is clinical service. We have it run a clinic and evaluate carefully the ability to smell and taste in people for all sort, sorts of purposes. Some are for litigation. But in general, patients are referred to us by physicians, neurologists, or otolaryngologists primarily 
to have their do an accurate assessment of the degree to which they do have a smell problem or a taste problem or the nature of that problem. Interesting. So what does a typical day look like for you working at the Smell and Taste Center? Of course, COVID has changed that dramatically, uh, but I come in, I have a staff, uh, often we have meetings to des- describe or go over what's happened during the week. But on our clinic days, a patient will come in early around 7.30 in the morning. They'll meet with me for 20 minutes or so, go over all the issues. They've filled in a questionnaire before they come in. And then uh, they're tested in various stations. Uh, we measure airflow through the nose. We measure some psychological uh, indices like depression. We look at how well they can smell out of each side of the nose using threshold tests as well as bilaterally using the upset. Um, at the end of the day, they spent four or five hours with us and then I go over all the test results and we have a report that we give to them and their referring physician, if there is a referring physician. So get a little closure, I counsel the patients at the end of the day, we think about options that they may consider for uh, treatment or have their physicians consider for therapy. So it's a fairly uh, comprehensive day on clinic days. Other days, of course, it's writing grants or writing papers or doing research, uh, testing people and various protocols and so on. And then, of course, there's, there's days where it's just strict uh, administration, paperwork kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So how would someone who has a smell disorder get connected with the Smell and Taste Center? You mentioned referrals. Is that the only way to be seen? No, they can call the Smell and Taste Center directly. Right now, uh, because of COVID, uh, we're not seeing patients person to person, but we've developed tests like the upset that can be sent through the mail and we can do uh, Zoom meetings with patients at this point. That has not yet been set up as of this date, but within a few weeks from now, uh, in sometime in in, uh, in October, we'll be up and running, but it will be done, mostly remotely done. There will be a few patients that we bring in directly, uh, but with all the social distancing and all the uh, sanitation involved, but we're going to be primarily doing remote evaluations uh, from this moment in time. That's interesting. I'll make sure that I include the link to your website in the episode description so listeners who are interested can find the link to your website there and go and check you all out. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So another question that I have for you is from from a clinical standpoint, is anosmia classified as a disability in the United States? Well, according to the AMA, it is, uh, but it doesn't account for much of the total uh, loss of the body. I don't know what the current standards are, but typically 5% of the total loss. It's quite different if you lose a limb or other kinds of problems, but yes, it is considered a disability. However, it Across the board, it may not lead to uh, payment, depending on governmental programs and so on. There are a lot of issues. Uh, Smell testing, for example, is not reimbursed by most insurance companies. Uh, There's no what's called a CPT code for classifying smell testing. So that's been a major hindrance. Many doctors 
are reluctant to bother to give smell tests in part because it costs them money to do it and they can't get reimbursed. So that's been a big challenge. And that's true in not only the United States, but throughout the world, that these tests and evaluating people do not get reimbursed uh, by insurance companies. And that's quite unfortunate because that inhibits people from seeking help. And also, uh, it generally suggests that this is not important to many uh, regulators or to insurance companies. What does it take to get a CPT code for a problem or a disorder? Well, it requires a lot. You have to have uh, the tests that are used have to be FDA approved. Tests like the UPSIT do have FDA lower level approval to be given uh, as long as they don't focus on any particular disease. However, to go to the next level, it's a lot of bureaucratic activity. People have tried over the years to try to get FDA approval and has not been successful. Even after you get such approval, though, the payment, or what's called RSV, is dependent upon how much physician time is involved in giving the test. Obviously, with a self-administered test, not much physician time is required. Of course, the payment amount would depend on how long it takes to interpret the test, the time with the patient, and so on. So all those things uh, are doable. It's just the cost and time is quite uh, excessive. Uh, We've met with FDA attorneys, uh, and we're talking well over a million dollars or more just to get through the processes. And for that reason, uh, this has not been done. There's also a tendency on insurance companies not to want to pay for any things they aren't paying for now. And uh, new, it's very hard to get FDA approval for new technologies if they, if existent technologies don't have some counterpart. That's interesting to me. So as a person, obviously, who has uh, nausea, it would be nice if things like that were covered or provided for um, when, especially for people who are first going through having an osmia or another smell disorder, it would be nice if um, clinicians were able to refer them to smell testing and have it be covered by insurance. Sure. So there are that... exceptions. Uh, uh-huh. Exceptions uh, often Medicare pays a little bit as well as the VA or VA hospitals. So the government, some of the government programs do pay small amounts but often it really doesn't cover the cost of the the true cost of giving these tests. That kind of leads me to a thought of why do you think that is? Why do you think that, for example, like vision and hearing are tested for in children before they leave the hospital? Why do you think smell has not been on our radar? I think there are many reasons for that. One is there weren't reliable, valid tests for determining that. Uh, Of course, that's not the case today. We now have these tests. I think, generally speaking, people don't realize that smell is important until it affects them. Mm -hmm. Most people would say it's not very important, but when they discover that after they lose their sense of smell, that they can't taste food or food tastes like cardboard, then all of a sudden it becomes a major issue. The same with safety. I think people really take for granted the sense of smell, but if you think of the times there's been something burning on the stove or perhaps a, a shorted electric wire or something in the car, uh, all of these safety issues come to the fore only after you experience them, but you don't really think about that much, you know, how important smell is for that. 
or spoiled food, things of this sort. So I think until it really hits you in the face, no, no pun intended, you really don't know, uh, it's not appreciated. And I think it's just been traditionally, it hasn't been, uh, many medical textbooks don't even have a chapter or a section on the sense of smell, which is, I think, changed dramatically. I've written dozens and dozens of chapters for medical textbooks now. So fortunately, at least it's out there. Uh, but again, most uh, ear, nose, and throat doctors or most me medical schools don't teach anything about it in school. That's interesting. It's also heartening to hear that you've written chapters for textbooks. That's good news. <laughs> yeah. Just you got to get people to read them. <laughs> yeah, slowly but surely, right? Right. So the next question for you, what would you like people who have anosmia or another type of smell disorder to know about the current state of affairs in the world of scientific research in regards to smell? Well, I think the first of all, to realize the sense of smell is very complicated. Uh, the number of receptors are involved, the number of cells that are involved. We start out with, with about um, 10 million receptor cells at the top of the nose. Uh, there are hundreds of different classes of cells that have to work in uh, combination with one another to give the proper odors out and so on, and uh, or to, for people to perceive the proper smells. I think patience is important. Right now, there aren't really any good therapies for most cases of smell loss. Uh, if there's nasal inflammation, then we do know that steroids, uh, prednisone, things of this sort, can clear up that inflammation and can bring back smell to some degree in many people. So for people with nasal sinus disease or other kinds of disorders, there are treatments that can be effective if given appropriately. A lot of the things that are claimed out there right now are still controversial. Uh, one thing that we do know is that the vast majority of people will get some return of smell function over time, particularly if it's due to a virus and things of this sort. Uh, we've published studies about half the people that come to our clinic when tested on two occasions will show some small degree of improvement, but statistically significant improvement over time. If someone comes in with some smell loss, but not total loss, then there's about one chance in four that they will get back into the age-adjusted normal range on quantitative smell tests. If they come in with total loss, then it's about a 12% probability that they're going to get back into the normal range. Having said that, there are things to try. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the evidence is pretty weak for the things that can be tried. Among those things, there's uh, vitamins. Uh, certainly, if someone has a vitamin deficiency, that needs to be addressed. Uh, health generally is important. I think the more that one uh, is healthy, uh, they'll have less problems. I think the big thing is prevention. The fewer colds you can you get, the uh, less you're exposed to pollution, the more time you realize that if things smell bad, to stay away from them. All those kinds of things can lead to uh, not getting uh, a smell problem. There's a phenomenon called olfactory training or smell training. The evidence for that's pretty weak, unfortunately, uh, because the amount of improvement that occurs is about what you see without any intervention. Uh, that's, there's a whole industry selling all kinds of things. Doesn't hurt to try them, but the scientific evidence, if you use double-blind studies with controls, 
suggests that this, these things are not very effective. Nonetheless, uh, that's sort of the, uh, sold a lot, people are talking about it a lot, but uh, I think when you carefully look at the studies where there's been lack of controls and you see how often spontaneous improvement occurs, uh, if that works, it, it's uh, just marginal at best. Interesting. So is there anything else that you'd like to share with listeners? Well, I think um, I mentioned earlier to be patient. Spontaneous improvement does occur. Main thing is to uh, minimize the exposure to situations where you might pick up a virus. Uh, obviously, with COVID-19, it appears that smell loss is a very early sign of uh, infection with the SARS virus associated with COVID-19. The uh, good news is that over about an eight-week period, about 65 to 70% of people who have COVID-19 will regain their smell function. We've done, we have published a study recently on that, and we see that about two-thirds roughly uh, of people get their smell back within a matter of uh, four or five weeks. There are some people that continue to have smell loss after COVID-19. We're not sure how long it will take for them to recover their function, if they can recover it at all. But the good news with COVID-19 is the vast majority of people will get normal smell back within a relatively short period of time. I think the other thing to be aware of is there can be slow return of function over years. We see this in many patients. Uh, so that, again, don't become too despondent if uh, you don't something, notice something right away. The other point I think that one has to be aware of is that the smell loss affects people in different ways. Some people doesn't affect them at all. They're, they say, well, it's not a big deal, you know, uh, I can go, go through my life and everything will be fine. Other people, it's a major catastrophe. Maybe if their life was uh, focused on the culinary arts, things of this sort. But keep in perspective that loss of smell isn't as bad as loss of vision or hearing and many of the other things that go on. And I think that in, uh, if you see a therapist, I think one of the functions of therapy is to sort of put it in a bigger perspective. There are a lot of things that occur in life and this is one that can occur. It's a terrible situation, but people live, go beyond that and move on. So I think I always encourage patients to keep in perspective the situation and sort of uh, uh, realize that there are many other things that could have happened to them and that as bad as this is, there are many people who are born without a sense of smell. There are many people who are experiencing what they're experiencing. They're not alone. That's another point uh, I think is important. Many patients come to us and they think they're the only person in the world that have this problem. And uh, when they come to our clinic and they see all these other people in the waiting room, then they discover, wait a minute, you know, I'm not alone. So I think it's good to communicate with other people about the problem, but I also think that at some point, many people have to sort of let it go and move forward because there's so many more interesting things in life than just worrying about this one particular issue. Yeah, I think that's a good piece of advice for sure. Thank you for sharing that. So sure. I just would like to say thank you overall for coming on the podcast today and, and speaking with us. It was great to talk with you and I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
Thank you to Dr. Doty for coming on the podcast and speaking with all of us today. It was fascinating to learn more about why the Upset was created and how it works and how the Smell and Taste Center got its start. If you'd like to learn more about the Smell and Taste Center, including visiting them for an appointment, make sure to click on the link in the episode notes. I'll make sure to put it there. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email me at thesmellpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at The Smell Podcast and visit online at thesmellpodcast.com. I'm always interested in sharing listener stories, so please get in touch. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Smell Podcast if you listen using iTunes. Reviews are helpful because they allow others to find the show. Finally, if you would like to financially support the podcast, you can do so by clicking on the link in the episode description. I appreciate your support. And a huge shout out to everyone who currently contributes to the show, because your generosity is what makes the podcast possible. Until next time, have a great day.